They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you've seen me, and yet you do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, Is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, Do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Well, John chapter 6, I've said it every week, it's a long chapter. There's 71 verses. And I think three or four times I reconsidered how many verses and which verses to look at this week. Certainly we have to pick up with verse 34, which I intentionally left off because I love the request that the crowds bring. And we've already established that the crowds were there to hear Jesus' teaching. They had seen the wonders of what he had done, but they had not seen them as signs, Jesus says. They were there. They wanted more. When he fed them, miraculously, they wanted to stay in that kind of relationship. We love the idea that our physical and temporary needs could be met absolutely free. And yet Christ pointed them and will point us again today to the fact that what he wants to give away freely is eternal life in him. Something beyond just what our physical bodies need. But as uh, J.C. Ryle said, Christ is to the soul what bread is to our bodies. And bread at this time, again, we live in a world where some of us may even be looking at this picture thinking that's something I can't eat. But to the crowds, to the original audience, bread was the stuff of life. That was it. I mean, there's a reason we say something is your bread and butter. They probably didn't have a whole lot of butter going on at that time, but they certainly had bread. And it was the basic food source. It was the thing they relied on, particularly these, this poor crowd that came to him that would be working day by day for bread. Jesus picks the perfect illustration. And then we start to think, oh my goodness, well, Jesus has left them all behind. He's, he's sent the disciples across the sea and, and then he himself goes up to the mountain, shows up on the sea and he leaves this huge crowd and when the crowd comes back, it almost sounds like he's trying to get rid of them. Doesn't sound very seeker sensitive, Jesus. Don't you know how to keep a church together? Shouldn't you of all people know how to draw people and keep them? That's exactly what he proves to us today. He says, yes, I, I do know that. My father will draw all that have been given to me to me, and I will keep them to the end of the age. I will raise them on the last day. There is a great sanctuary of security to be found for those who come to Christ believing. 
Now, last week we talked about grace, getting a free thing that you don't deserve. Getting a good thing you don't deserve. Mercy being not getting a bad thing that you do deserve, right? If I deserve punishment and I don't get punishment, I have mercy. If I deserve something wrong but I get something good, that good thing is grace. We talked extensively about the need for us to come to Christ, not with our own works or our own plans, our own designs or our own achievements, but to come empty-handed. And that for many of us who perhaps grew up in the church, or, or even if we haven't grown up, even if we've been around the church life for a little while, it becomes, we become sort of callous to this idea of grace and the weightiness of it. And so we're going to talk about it again today, because that's what Jesus is talking about. He's talking to people whom he is calling to come to him believing. You hear that in the beginning of this passage in response to, sir, give us this bread always, which this request most likely was just them saying, hey, will you give us this bread always? Will you continually satisfy us day by day and, and renew that bread of life, whatever it is? They're still thinking in temporal context, but Jesus says, In contrast, he doesn't say, yes, I will give you the bread of life. He says, I am the bread of life. Now, this is a colossal statement in the Gospels. Gospels, Because this, again, is Jesus echoing through the Greek here, ego eimi, I am. He's echoing what his father said generations before in the book of Exodus to Moses. When Moses was told by God to go to Pharaoh and tell tell him, let my people go and take Israel out of Egypt... He said, well, when I talk to Israel, who should I say sent me? And he says, tell them I am has sent me. I am that I am. I am who I am. Popeye ripped off God from a long, long time ago. I am who I am. I am that I am. I will remain. There's an eternality about God in this name. And Jesus takes it and expands on it, specifies something about himself. I am the bread of life. This is our series title. This is what we've been talking about all these weeks now. Today we want to walk through Jesus' teachings in this passage because they are weighty in understanding what this bread of life really is. Because again, this is bread that the people that were listening to Jesus were thinking, this is something I would love to not have to work for anymore. And then yet when Jesus starts to turn things into the spiritual realm, they start asking questions like, what shall we do to be doing the works of God? So they love, again, in the temporary context, I'd love to get something for free, but in the eternal and spiritual context, they can't even grapple with the idea that God might give them eternal life freely. And so he's talking about bread, and they're thinking, okay, bread's something you've got to grow grain, and you've got to water it, and you've got to tend to it, and then you've got to cut the grain down, and you've got to do everything to make bread, and all that work that leads up to it, what kind of work do we need to do to present to God? And it's, it's fascinating because, again, even in their desire to get something for free here and now, they can't reckon with getting something for free here and now and then and thereafter for eternity. Because what Jesus calls them to do and what he called them last week to do was to come believing just with simple faith. This is the work of God, air quotes Jesus would have put on those if he was talking in our modern context, perhaps. Because the work of God is not the work that God is expecting you to do, but this is the work, if that's how you want to understand it. It is the thing that you will do in response, which is believe. You can't start by believing, can you? You know, in today's world, we talk about faith all the time. The world loves the word faith, right? 
we love this concept of having faith and and we especially love just leaving it at that just making it this nebulous like energy that we all possess if we could just have faith if we could just believe but it totally tears apart all the grammatical purpose of that word because to have faith you can't just simply have faith you have to put your faith in something or in someone what Christ is calling them to do is to put their faith in him. And, and he proves by calling them to faith that there is no work that initiates the work of God being received by a person. It is not as though you, you know, do the religious activity and once that thing is done, God will appear and he'll give you this bread of life. That's what they're looking for. What can we do to be doing the works of God? And then they finally give up again in verse 34 and they say, okay, sir, give us this bread always. You're going to give it to us over and over again, right? You're going to renew it, just like the manna that came down from the sky day by day. Because remember, this is happening. This conversation is happening around the time of year where Passover was approaching. And so they're thinking about these things in the Old Testament. But they're not willing to just simply believe. And Jesus is going to explain to them why some believe and why some don't believe. Have you ever wondered that? If you're a believing Christian this morning, have you ever wondered why you're a believing Christian? And I imagine if you have, you've wondered that because you're looking at somebody else who doesn't believe and you say, why me, not them? Perhaps if you're not coming here believing Christ this morning, you might be doing the opposite, saying, why them, not me? What is it that awakens faith in us? Because again, to put faith in something is not the starting point, right? The starting point has to be that something or some person doing or being who they are or what they will be doing for us to respond with faith, right? Faith is not the initiator. Something has to happen before that. The gift of grace has to come first. You know, we try at home with a five-year-old and a two-year-old to build up dinner time as best we can. It's a very special time. It's something that I prioritize in my life as often as I possibly can to get home and eat dinner with my family. It's very meaningful, right? Having that time around the table with the people that you live with sharing in food. It's, there's something spiritual about that because we see it all throughout Scripture that these, there's meals and there's feasts and there's times of celebration around a table full of food. And yet with a five-year-old and a two-year-old, you kind of realize not everything that you put before them is going to be received with thanksgiving and faith, is it? Especially the two-year-old right now. The five-year-old knows what's good for her to some extent. She's willing to say, I don't think I'm going to like this, but I'm going to give it a try. Whereupon trying it, she says, no, I was right. I didn't like this. And yet I know I have to eat a little bit more. But the two-year-old will just simply laugh at the idea. You think I'm going to eat this? I told you what I wanted. I wanted a tortilla. Or I wanted a hamburger. I wanted something off the menu for today. Now, the two-year-old will come to the table very easily. Two-year-old, it's dinner time, come to your seat. And she generally stops what she's doing, and not always, but generally stops what she's doing. She comes believing to a certain extent. I believe you that it's dinner time. I don't believe that that's dinner. There's something else for dinner, right? There's got to be. And that's why by the time we've said amen, and one glance has been looked at the food, the two-year-old looks up and says, I'm done. I don't want anything to do with that. I don't believe you. 
I've come, but I have not come believing. And it makes me wonder, as a parent, am I not doing a good job of drawing and enticing my two-year-old to the table? Do I need to do a better job presenting the food? Because the food's good. My wife is an excellent cook. The food is really good. The desire to eat is there. But it seems that the drawing power of dad is not quite enough to get the spoon full of food and to the mouth more than maybe once and not without weeping and gnashing of teeth. When we look at the crowd here and we look at the crowd that is to come and as labeled as the Jews, what we're seeing here is the response of Jesus's initiation. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But, verse 36, look at verse 36, if you will, please. Because this is our conflict for today. But I said to you, that you have seen me, yet you do not believe. Now, I am aware of my tendency to rabbit trail, so that's why I'm moving to this part of the stage, so I'll just do it really briefly. It's just a super side note, for free, add-on to the sermon. These words prove to us that seeing does not always mean believing. That in those moments where we would say, God, if you would just do this thing for this person so they'll believe you or so that I'll believe you, if you will show me so that I can see with my eyes, I'll believe, Jesus proves to us that that is not a guarantee. It's very important for us to catch that because there were 5,000, maybe 10,000, maybe 15, maybe 20,000 people who saw him and yet did not believe Now, the doctrines that Jesus is going to express are are doctrines that have been looked at like the two-year-old looks at the food that is unrecognizable. I want nothing to do with that. It doesn't fit my worldview of a menu for Tuesday night. This crowd is going to hear what Jesus has to say. And in verse 41, when we come to the next response of the crowd, what are they doing? Look at the word that starts with G. What did they do? They grumbled. This grumbling response is not gone away. Those in the church still grumble to some of the things that they might read in the Bibles and they might rework into a way that fits their theological parameters. And and I am going to be trying my hardest not to just impose on anybody a theological doctrinal structure. What I want to do this morning with what Jesus teaches us is say, here's what he said Here's what it seems he means, and you've got to do something about it. I mean, truly, that's what we have to do every time we come to the word. But the thing that we have to do today is we have to come believing, not come understanding, but come believing. Coming in faith is what Christ is looking for, and they're not going to be willing to do that. So let's look at these doctrines. Now, these doctrines that Jesus is going to share with us in this passage He's not putting forth as, now here are the five tenets of an ancient faith from long ago that need to be withheld uh, with great honor. and He's he's not presenting it as though he's even making a presentation. He's talking about himself. He's talking about the relationship between the Father and the Son and the work that they do together. Okay, so listen to what he says. Let's go back to 37. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out the first one. Verse 38. 
For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. Verse 40. 39 and 40, 38 and 39 is what we just read. Verse 40, for this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. That's the second one. So the first one, verse 37, I said to you that you will not believe, and yet you do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me. The gift of the Father is guaranteed to be given to the Son. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and they will come believing. Secondly, in verses 38 through 40, the will of the Father is what Jesus has come to do, and he has no intention of disobeying or leaving his will, the will of his Father, incomplete. The will of the Father in keeping to the end those who will come to Christ is what Jesus has come to do, verses 38 through 40. Now let's zoom down to 44 through 47. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father, except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me has eternal life. So the last major teaching, if we can kind of group these into three sections, in verses 44 to 47, is talking about the drawing power of God to bring them to the Son. And the Son's work in that as well, because the Son is the one revealing the teachings of God the Father. So we have the gift of the Father is guaranteed to be given to the Son. We have the will of the Father is the mission of the Son. He's going to bring and keep all of his people to the end, all who will come to him. And then lastly, the how is the drawing power of God to bring them to the Son as the Son reveals him. It is hard to break those down into smaller words, so I apologize You might have to do a little extra work if you want to write some of those things down. But for now, let's consider this an expression of or one of those parts of Scripture where we see what theologians like to call the doctrines of grace. Because salvation as God reveals it through Christ is not something that he calls us to do. He calls us to believe. He calls us to come to him believing. That is what he's looking for. And yet these doctrines that are going to be not received by the crowds, not received by the Jews, are still not being received today because the human heart has no desire to come to Christ. So the first thing we have to see here is that salvation is a work of God. It is not a work of an individual who understands what God's doing and therefore comes and believes. It's not the work of somebody who has pleased God with his work and therefore comes and believes. It is the one who sees the work of God and receives it. Therefore, the distinction has to be there are those who want the bread of life, who want to come believing, and there are those who do not. Well, why me, not you? Why you, not me? All those questions are things that we have to ask, and we will answer them. In verse 36, but I said to you that have seen me and yet do not believe. You see the initiating work of God, the initiating work of the Son here. You have seen me. And referring, you know, underneath that that statement is you've seen my works, you've heard my teaching, you've talked with me perhaps even, we've had conversations. 
All of your interactions with me have happened, and yet you do not believe. Why? There's no desire. There is only desire for bread that will satisfy me today, but not bread that will satisfy me eternally. When the crowds say, give us this bread always, and Jesus responds with, I am the bread of life, we should again hear clear echoes from way back in chapter 4 when Jesus was at the well and, and the woman there was drawing water. And he says, you know, if you ask me, I'd give you living water. And she says, give me this water. It's the same problem. There's, there's a desire for earthly things and temporary things, but there is not a desire for Christ. And he shows that in verse 35 in his answer. Sir, give us this bread always. You give us this bread, two separate things. And Jesus says, they're one and the same. I am the bread of life. I can't give you the bread of life without giving you myself. And if you're not believing me, you can't have the bread of life. If your desire is for something other than me, then you can't have the bread of life because I am the bread of life. They're not grasping at their real need. For the crowds, they're more like an ostrich which is with its head in the ground, taking its head out of the ground to say, hey, is there food out here? There's not? Okay, well, I'll come back when there is. The Jews, there's a different analogy, perhaps. Those that he meets in the synagogue at Capernaum. In verse 59, which we didn't read this morning, we see that John tells us, hey, Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. Uh, theologians kind of believe that since there's no clear verse in here that says, and then they moved to the synagogue from the other part of the sea, it seems like right around here is where that change happens, particularly verse 41. Verses 41 through 43, we see the grumbling of the Jews. Whereas the, the crowds were those with their head in the sand just looking for food and waiting to hear the, the dinner bell ring. The Jews were those with their noses up in the air saying, we know you, Jesus. How can you say you came down from heaven? We know your parents. We know where you came from. You can't hide that from us. You can't convince us otherwise. And John reveals to us in verse 41 that this was done not with an attitude of, of, hey, I don't understand this. Maybe perhaps as Nicodemus asks that ridiculous question, you know, how can a man be born again? Shall he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Trying to understand with some degree of humility, but also kind of like a, what are you talking about? None of this makes sense kind of attitude. No, these Jews are grumbling about this because it doesn't fit their worldview. It doesn't fit their perspective. It doesn't fit their theological understanding. And so the doctrines of grace, this idea that God draws people to himself, that, that the people of God are the gift of the Father and they're guaranteed to be given to the Son. And everything Jesus says from 37 all the way to 47 leaves us with nothing but come and believe. There is no, Jesus, Jesus doesn't say anything about how, you know, the Father's going to pick some because of this. And he's not going to pick others because of that. There's a doctrine that we call unconditional election. The choosing of the Father happens unconditionally. Now, the converse of that would be to say that election is conditional, that, that God looked forward into the future and saw those who, upon hearing the gospel, would believe and receive the bread of life, and then he chose them. But that totally takes away the whole concept of election, doesn't it? That, that has to be something else entirely. 
We see the doctrine of election in Scripture and other places when we talk about how God chose people. I mean, we see him in the Old Testament choosing Israel to be his special people. And certainly from the testimony of the people of God in the Old Testament, we can see that they were not chosen for any righteousness of their own. So if this is true, that the gift of the Father is guaranteed to be given to the Son, then we have to ask, well, well, what's my part in it, though, right? If you're just telling me, Jesus says, hey, everybody who the Father gives me is going to come to me, and I'm not going to cast anybody out. Boy, that sounds really great for those of us who say, like, yeah, I'm in. But what about for people who say, well, I'm not in? And Jesus says the, the opposite later on in 44 through 47. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And I'll raise him up on the last day. How do we know if the Father is drawing people? Now, some, some have looked at this passage and just said, hey, God draws everybody. And then they have to choose. The only problem with that is that I don't see anything in this passage particularly about choosing. Now, we do have a response, right? Come believing. I put that as the title instead of the doctrines of grace. Because when we walk away from this passage, we need to recognize that God is calling us in obedience to come to him in faith. Both at the moment of our salvation, but then every day afterwards. To never think that, you know, yeah, I know why God chose me and why God gave me to the Son. It's because I'm this or because he knew that I would become this great Christian who showed up at all the things and always said or did the right thing. Well, it's, it's not that at all. Secondly, again, the, the second doctrine that Jesus brings up about the will of the Father in keeping those to the end and that that's what he came to do, Jesus leaves no room to say, you got to do this if you want to be in. He just simply says, Everyone that the Father gives me will come to me, and I will keep him to the end. I've come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. The will of him who sent me is that I should lose nothing of all that he's given to me. So there's a keeping power that is an incredible encouragement to the Christian. Because if God can't keep us, who's to say that we're going to stick around? Who's to say that a sin that we do isn't going to entice us so much to just leave Christ entirely. The keeping power is not in the person's decision. It's in the one who's doing the keeping. And this, again, is why this is a problem for us. The heart has no desire to come to Christ on its own. So in, upon hearing some of these doctrines, it sounds like, well, goodness, if, if I don't decide, then, and if God doesn't choose to draw, and, 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 and the questions just pile up and pile up, and and, and they don't get any easier when we come to the last part, because again, verse 44 through 47, both positively in the first place, Jesus says that everyone the Father gives me will come to me, but then negatively he says no one can come to me unless the Father who sends me draws him. You can't come to Christ on your own. And yet what I'm going to call you to do at the end of this sermon is come to Christ. There's a mystery to this. And I, I thought a lot about perspective in 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 drawing, or not even in drawing, but just in real life, you know, our perspective of things. If you were to stand on train tracks with a completely open view and you see the two parallel tracks just lined up perfectly, as you look further off in the distance, it almost looks as though they're eventually going to converge, right? Now, now this illustration can be helpful in, in one way and har harmful in another, because in the one sense, if we look at these train tracks as the sovereign work of God and the responsibility of humanity... We see both things as existing in Scripture, but one is clearly dependent upon the other. Our responsibility means nothing if we can't first see that Christ is the one who has done the saving work and done the drawing work. 
in one sense, as we look at those train tracks in our minds and we consider that, that point where it almost looks like they'll converge, that in one sense represents our, our growth and understanding that we see these, these two things do go together, though they'll never truly meet because they are distinct. It's a hard thing to wrestle with. And again, the conflict is not in understanding because Jesus isn't calling us to understand these things. He's calling us to do what? Come believing. The crowds wanted temporary food. They had no desire for Christ. They had no desire for this eternal stuff that they were talking about. The Jews wanted better understanding of what he was going to say. If, if they were going to accept him, they had no desire to accept him otherwise. And since he didn't fit how they understood things, he wasn't going to fit into their lives. The crowds and the Jews are both left with this question, why not me or why me? If we're in or we're out, the question needs to be answered. Because my will and God's will, my desires and God's desires are separate, like those two train tracks. And neither of them is going to bend in one sense. God's will is supreme and it's going to reign. And, and, and our will on our own will not bend on its own. It must be conquered. There must be that point of convergence later on where our wills are overtaken by the will of God. Now, in the human experience, we don't see that, right? Like this morning, I don't see glowing halos above the heads of those who are elect and, you know, a, a bright shining arrow pointing at the ones who are believing now, too. We don't know. From, from our human experience and our perspective, the only thing that we have to say whether somebody is in Christ or not in Christ, whether somebody's received the bread of life or not, is the fruit of their life, the, the things that we can see. Yet Christ knows those who are his. He calls us to accept that truth, to come to him believing. It's very interesting. J.C. Ryle had something to say about this, that it is not true that the person who disbelieves would come if he could, but it is true that he could come if he would. Does that make any sense to you? Do you know how many times I had to read that the other day? Could, would, could, would. What are you talking about? Ryle is saying that the desire is missing from the person apart from Christ. Because when my two-year-old sits at the table and I give her rice and beans, which she loves, but she looks at it and says, I have no desire for it, I need to do some kind of drawing work to get that spoon in her hand and the rice and beans on the spoon into her mouth so that she can see, oh, wow, and be transformed by the realization of it. By receiving the bread of life, our desires are completely transformed. Nobody is allowed to say that the reason I'm in Christ is because I knew it was going to be the right decision. The reason that we're in Christ is because we have tasted and seen that the Lord is good. And that is the work of God. And so, yes, our response is, come and believe. But when we do that, we don't suddenly, a, a, a flip isn't switched to where we say, oh, wow, now I'm, now I'm an, a robotic, obedient Christian. I mean, boy, if you need evidence that we're not robots, just look at your own sin life, right? Oh, my goodness, if God wanted to make us automatons and just obey his will at every moment and just have, have a... a a puppeteer kind of sovereignty, if we, if we eschew it in that way, then why are we sinning so much still? Why do we struggle with belief so much? 
It's because God wants us to see that there is the human responsibility factor. It's still there. But it depends entirely on the sovereign will of God. I know this is a lot. But don't blame me. Blame Jesus. He's the one who's talking about it. I'm just trying my best. Jeremiah 17, 9 says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? None of us can understand our hearts. Again, if the problem is our desire, that we have no desire to come to Christ, then our hearts are the ones that are confusing our desires, our true needs with our false needs. Making us ask questions like, will the bread of life really satisfy? Will knowing more about Jesus really help me with my life? Or should I maybe look to something else? Should I focus more of my time and energy on getting all the entertainment out of my life as I possibly can? Or just working as hard as I can and getting all my accomplishments there? Or is it really worthwhile for me to feast on the bread of life as much as I possibly can? Our hearts want to deceive us into thinking it's not true. That he doesn't fit our preference. That he doesn't really truly meet our needs. But the truth of the gospel only comes in when Christ, I don't want to say he doesn't shove the bread of life into your mouth, but you see him for who he truly is. That's why, again, look again at verse 36, so important. I said to you that you have seen me and yet you do not believe. That seeing, clearly he's saying, you're seeing me on the same level as you see the bread and the fish that you ate. You're seeing me as a temporary thing, just like those temporary things. But you're missing entirely that there's an eternity in this context that I'm really pointing to. And so though our desires are messed up, Christ's desires are not. His desire to keep all who are his transforms our hearts towards him, to come to him in faith. Verses 44 through 48 show that Christ's role is a revealing work. In verse 44, no one can come to me unless the Father who sends me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It's written in the prophets. This is a general reference to the Old Testament. It may have been a specific reference in Isaiah. Um, scholars are divided on that. But he says, the prophets say, they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone who has seen the, has seen the Father except he who is from God, he has seen the Father. He's talking about himself. Christ reveals who the Father is to his people. And we can't but believe at that point because we've seen him for who he is. Because my two-year-old has tasted the rice and beans and went, oh, yeah, I do like this stuff. Her mind was transformed by an outside source, not from her own reasoning. You, parents, you know, with a two-year-old, you can't sit there and go, now listen, two-year-old, I only have what's best in mind for you. I need you to trust me and reach out and take this. No, it, it's going to take a transforming work. They, they, <laughs> this, this analogy falls apart to some extent, but the transforming work doesn't happen until the food enters the two-year-old's mouth and they realize, oh, yes, I do believe, and I will eat more of this because this is what my belly truly wants. This is what my soul truly needs is Christ. Jesus has seen the Father, and he reveals the Father to us. That's what John 1 tells us was his mission. John 1, I believe it was 18. Don't say things off your notes. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. And how has he done that? He's done that through his life, his death, and his resurrection. 
the ministry that continues today. Every time we open his word, God is revealing to us who he is and his plan most perfectly exemplified in the breaking of the bread of life. Not just exemplified, but fulfilled. The purpose, the mission, all at the cross. How can people be motivated to come and believe? They can't. They have to be transformed. And in seeing the bleeding, dying Savior on the cross, our hearts are transformed because we realize that's the place I should be. And that however God has done this, though it matters, it matters much less than the fact that I come and believe him. And that I do that daily. And that I not give up on thinking on the cross and what Christ has done in my place. Because it's the most defining event in human history. And it's the most defining event in the life of every person. And I say every person because those who believe, that life defines everything. That, that event defines everything in their lives. And for those who disbelieve, that is where judgment is going to reside. How did you respond to Jesus? When the bread of life was offered to you, did you receive it? Did you come believing? No, but I read John 6 and it's not my fault. Sorry, it still is. When we stand before God on judgment day, if we're in Christ, we can do nothing but sing his praise. If we're out of Christ, we can do nothing but say that we got what we deserved. Because in the end, it is either going to be us aligning with Jesus, who's aligned with the will of his father, and us saying, Lord, your will be done. Or God looking at us and saying, you've rejected my son, so your will be done. See what the fruit of rejecting Christ truly is. Christ calls us in his broken body to come to look and believe. And the result is a new desire. Because we see the love of Christ transform our hearts, make us new. Augustine had a great thing to say about considering all this matter of drawing and why someone and why not someone else. He says, do not seek to determine whom God draws and whom he does not draw, nor why he draws one man and not another. But if thou thyself are not drawn by God, pray to him that thou mayest be drawn. Just ask him. If somebody's in the state where they say, well, I know God's not drawing me and I want to be drawn, well, that's a confusing statement. If you want to be drawn, that's probably evidence that you're being drawn. So believe. Come and believe. If you don't know if you're being drawn, believe. Come in confidence because that's what Christ has. He is confident in his work. I mean, listen to these words again. I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me. Raise it up on the last day. He's got eternity in mind entirely. Constantly, rather. This is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. I will raise him up on the last day. He says it three times on this passage. He's going to say it again next week. Everyone who comes to him, he will not cast out. It's not a matter of saying, well, I don't know. Am I being drawn or am I not being drawn? Believe and receive that. Come in confidence because Christ is confident. When he says, I will not cast anyone out who comes to me, he's saying, I'm going to do the exact opposite. I'm going to bring them in to a perfect sanctuary sanctuary in the middle of the storm, in the middle of whatever's going on in life, and more importantly, for the matter of eternity, to save them from the penalty of sin. So come in confidence to Christ as your true sanctuary for life. But you consider that in three contexts. First of all, a life of worship. All of salvation is on Christ, and all of it is by grace alone. It's not a matter of preference theologically. We have to accept that as the truth. 
I'm saved by grace and by grace alone through faith. Oh, faith, that's something I do. No, it's your response. Believe, come and believe. How will you apply that to a life of worship? How will you have a life of worship without that? How can you trust that what Christ calls you to and dying to yourself and living to him is even possible if some of it depends on you? It doesn't. For, for the Christian, salvation is secured. And we're called to just simply walk in that. To walk in obedience. And yeah, we stumble and yeah, we fail. And it reminds us that we still need a Savior. But in that life of worship, there's great blessing to be found in believing. In the simple coming and believing. That we can be confident in our salvation only because Christ was confident in his work. That the will of the Father was what he came to accomplish and he did it. If this is all true, then what can't he call you to do? What can't he call you to do? And how many times do we sense what God is trying to do in our lives and we go, nope, you got the wrong guy. Well, if he secured you in him and you can do nothing apart from him, there's nothing he can't ask of you. Secondly, consider this in the storms of life. Can you take this confidence of Christ's work in you eternally and trust in that in your day-to-day struggles? in the things you're going to face this afternoon and this week and in the month ahead. He's shown us that already by walking on the storm. He's sovereign over all those things. He's shown us that he's not only sovereign over those things, but sometimes he sends us into that storm so that we might grow in our trusting his work over our own. And then lastly, I want you to think about it in terms of your identity. So obedience, life of worship, storms of life, the challenges that you face, and lastly, identity. R.C. Sproul says of this passage, if you're in Christ, the Father has given you to the Son and he draws you to him. If this was the only true thing about you, it would still fill your eternity with purpose. It's not the only thing about you. It's the most important thing about you if you are in Christ. It's that you are a gift from the Father to the Son. That's a great place to find sanctuary, a great place to find rest and to trust in him what's going on. To trust that he will give us new desires day by day, refreshing our view of who he is and his great love and his great work, his securing, saving work on our behalf. Would you bow your heads and pray with me, please? Father, we thank you this morning that we can trust in nothing of our own, not our own work, not our own desires even. We can trust in the work of Christ we who have chosen to look to him have done so not because primarily because we have chosen but because we've been chosen and we don't know how all that works but you don't call us to come and understand you call us to come and believe Lord help us to wrestle well with these things in a way that honors you help us as, as Augustine encouraged us centuries ago if we're worried that we're not being drawn we just need to believe we need to ask to be drawn because Anyone who comes to you will not be cast out. We thank you for the confidence we have in Christ. And we pray all these things in his name. Amen.